Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. The sermon series is called The Kingdom. Over the next four weeks of Advent, in anticipation of Jesus' birth, we're going to talk about where this idea of God's kingdom came from and why Jesus is the one who finally brought the kingdom of God to fruition in our lives. I hope you enjoy. Friends, our first reading today is from 1 Samuel 13, verses 11 to 14. Listen for the word of God. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul replied, when I saw that the people were slipping away from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines were mustering at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down upon me at Gilgal. And I have not entreated the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The word of the Lord. All right, second scripture reading is from 1 Kings 11, 9 to 13. Then the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this matter that he should not follow other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your mind and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of your father David, I will not do it in your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. I will not, however, tear away the entire kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we got to do full screen today for the next couple weeks because, uh, frankly, I didn't have time to do all the slides half the way. You'll see why. There's a lot of slides that we're dealing with today. So, anyways, we are, uh, we are moving in to the season of Advent, which means that for a time, anyway, we're going to take a break from our sermon series, Church and State. I know, control your tears on that one. <laughs> but we'll come back to it after Christmas into the new year. But Advent... It's a time, uh, as you heard, it's a time when we anticipate and prepare for Jesus' presence in our world. And it's a time when we as Christians, we take an opportunity to reflect on why Jesus is important to us and why Jesus matters in our lives. Now, there's a lot of different tacks that you can take when it comes to anticipating Jesus' presence in our world. But the tack that I want to take has to do with how when Jesus was born, that signaled the beginning of God's kingdom on earth. Now, have you ever heard me talk about God's kingdom before? Oh, never, right, TC? Yeah, I never talk about it, ever. And the reason why I never talk about it is because it is so foundational to everything that Jesus teaches. In my opinion, you can't really understand Jesus unless you understand the kingdom. 
Because the first thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, if you go to the Gospel of Mark, the first thing he says, first words that come out of his mouth are, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe in the good news. So clearly, pretty important to him, right? We can agree on that. So what I thought I would do is I would talk about this concept of the kingdom. Because what many people don't realize is that this idea didn't start with Jesus. He's not the first person to bring up this idea. In fact, it's an idea that was in Judaism for a really, really long time before Jesus was even here. And so for the next four weeks, what we're going to do over each week in Advent is we're going to talk about the various influences on the kingdom that Jesus talks about in the New Testament. And there are three basic influences that come that bring it to him, and there's actually a fourth when he's alive. But we're going to talk about those each week. And this sermon series is called The Kingdom, which was super creative on my part, right? I just took the words <laughs> and slapped them up on the screen. So we're going to take the time to talk about this history each week. But even more important than the history is how the kingdom of God is very important for our spiritual journey. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God will not be coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, here it is, or there it is, for in fact, the kingdom of God is within you. For the kingdom of God to be in the world, it must first be in your hearts. And my hope is that each week, after you walk away from one of these sermons, that you will feel God's kingdom to be closer to your heart. So, we start this week with the first kingdom, the first influence. And this is an influence that is, it started the whole thing off, the whole concept of God's kingdom, which is the kingdom of Israel. Now, rather than just jump in and say, well, this is the kingdom of Israel, and this is where it starts, I want to walk you through the history of how it came about, because it didn't just come out of the blue. So I'm going to walk you through a timeline. Now, here you can see this. Everybody should have, well, not everybody, but you should be able to share at the very least, um, one of these. Now, this is not for you to take home. Uh, No, I know, I know. Um, We're going to leave these here, and you're going to refer to them each week. At the end of the series, if you want to take one, you are welcome to by that point. Um, But This is the timeline that we're going to be referring back to each time. We're going to be looking at this timeline in a variety of different ways. Um, I want to thank Lori Rulin. She's the one who actually helped create a lot of these, uh, at least this timeline graphic here, and you're going to see how it comes up. But we're going to start for round numbers around 2000 BC. That just makes things a lot easier for us to kind of understand in 2000 BC. So 2000 BC, the Israelites, they live in an area known as Canaan. Now, Canaan is what today we know as the Holy Land. And at the time that they're living in this area of Canaan down here, they are not known as the Israelites. So in 2000 BC, that's not who they are. For ease of use, we're going to call them Semites. Now, you can see that on the side of your little timeline there that we're referring to them as Semites. The reason why we're calling them Semites is because they spoke Semitic languages, like Hebrew and Aramaic, so that's why we're going to call them Semites. All right, so 2000 to 1750. Again, round numbers, just for kind of making it work. They exist in this area of Canaan down in here, and there are a bunch of shepherds. That's mostly what they are. They have these tribes. They form coalitions. They're together. They're kind of hanging out. But as a result of these coalitions that they form, they come into contact with a very important piece of technology, And this piece of technology is horse-driven iron 
chariots, which is what this relief, this Egyptian relief looks like. So they come into contact with these. And that piece of technology is super important for them because what it allows them to do is it allows them to migrate south into the Nile Delta. So let's take a look at this. So they, this is where they are. They're up here in the area of Canaan, and they start migrating around 1750 down here. And the reason they're able to do this is because they have these horse-drawn iron chariots. And what you have to realize is down here, they'd never seen a horse before in Egypt. They didn't even know what a horse was up until this point in time. So you can imagine that they're coming down with this technology, and they can just wipe them out. And so this migration, it starts to take place over a period of about 100 years. And by 1630, these Semites have taken over all of northern Egypt. They own all of this area. So they're there, 1630. Things are looking pretty good. But as you can expect, the people in southern Egypt, right down there, they end up getting a hold of this technology. <laughs> and once they get hold of horse-drawn iron chariots, they get pretty good at it, and they decide that they're going to come back up and drive these people out. Now, these people, by the way, are known as Hyksos at this point. This is what the Egyptians call them, Hyksos. And that's, that means leaders of foreign lands. That's what the Egyptians refer to them as. Now, the Semites, they drive them out. They come up and they drive them back towards the land of Canaan, 1520. Three, they begin to draw them out. Now, you have to realize that at this point in time, it's been about 200 years since they've been in the area of Canaan. Their people haven't been there for a long time. So they get up there, and they get back, and everybody's like, hey, uh, no room for you here, right? They basically say, hey, we got nothing for you. There's nothing that you can do. There's no place to stay. So the only place that they're able to go is around to the other side. And this is a bunch of mountains. These mountains exist. So you look here. This is all Cain, and this is down below. These mountains are above. So they literally go up into these mountains. And this is where they're going to stay for 400 years. They're going to be up in these mountains, up in this area. They're literally mountain people. Okay. So basically what you have to realize is here they are. They're up in the mountains. And, of course, that's not the place you really want to be. You want to be down below. You want to be down in this area. Because down in here, there are trade routes. This is the biggest trade route in all of the Middle East. Because if you want to bring your stuff from the Asian continent down into Africa, got to go through here. And if you want to bring your stuff from the African continent up into Asia, you got to go through there. So there's a lot of economy down there. A lot of economy going on. And... Of course, that's where you'd want to be. That's why it's the land flowing with milk and honey. That's why they refer to it that way. So, at this time, around this 400-year period, this is where the Semite tribes, they start to refer to themselves as the tribes of Israel. We don't entirely know why they start to refer to themselves that way, but that's what happens over this period of time. So they're up there, they're in the mountains, they're looking down, and they'd like to be down there. They'd like to be in this area, but they're not quite strong enough to get down in there because th given that these are important trade routes, big nations own these trade routes. They want to make sure they can get their stuff in and out of there, so they guard it pretty heavily. But then something big happens. In 1170, there is a massive economic contraction in the Middle East where basically all of these countries that were doing really well, for some reason, 
they start to recede. And over time, these countries, they can no longer maintain the trade routes. And so these people who were kind of overseeing it, these nations, they start to leave. Now, we don't know why the economic contraction takes place. But what we do know is the Israelites take advantage of it. So they're up in the mountains. Remember that, right? They're looking down and they say, hey, nobody's there anymore. We can come down. And so they start to come out of the mountains down into the land of Canaan. And they start taking over. And these small city-states, which had depended on these larger nations to defend them, they were not strong enough to keep the Israelites out. Now, what's important for you to understand is that at this point in time, these tribes that are taking over, they're not united. They all have their own leaders. Some of them have coalitions with each other. Now, according to the Bible, what they tell us is that the first person to unite the Israelite tribes together as one is a man named Saul in 1050 BC. He's the first person to bring them together into a united kingdom as one. And the way he's able to do this is because, frankly, he has the biggest army. I mean, that's really why. And according to the Bible, he was a brutal man. He was very violent. And the way he engendered loyalty was that he basically just threatened to kill you if you didn't follow what he wanted you to do. And this, this violence is, is referenced in the scripture that we read this morning. You can see that he's about to lose his authority. Now, the way they couch it in the scriptures is that he's turned from God. But you can kind of see what's going on. Let's take a look at what this says. So Samuel, who's a prophet, he comes up and he says, what have you done? And Saul replied, when I saw that the people were slipping away from me, I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. Now, people are slipping away. Why are they slipping away? Because his threat of violence isn't working the way it used to in terms of getting people to be loyal to him. And he's murdered by his own troops. In 1012 BC, they kill him off. They didn't want him around anymore. So from 1012 to about 1000, there's no real leadership. And according to the Bible again, at this point, that's when this guy David steps in and he takes over this united kingdom of Israel. Now David is considered to be the greatest king that Israel has ever had. And this is for a couple different reasons. One, he ruled over an era of unprecedented economic prosperity. He was a very good general, so he was able to expand their borders some. And on top of all this, when people were worshiping God, under him they were worshiping the one true God in heaven. Now this is according to the Bible. So as they're worshiping God, what David decides to do, he's like, we're going to build a temple to God. You've heard me talk a lot about the temple in the past, right? So this is the first time they build this temple, and they decide, okay, we're going to build this thing up, but he can't quite get it done. He dies in 970 BC before it can be built, and so his son Solomon, he takes over after him, and Solomon, he ends up finishing the temple, and he enjoys some of the prosperity that was enjoyed by his father. But then Solomon, he makes a grievous error. He turns away from the one true God in heaven. He starts worshiping foreign gods. And this is due to the influence of his wives. The Bible says he had a thousand of them. So clearly he was a very busy man. (laughs) So Solomon, when he does this, God becomes very upset. And this is what God says to Solomon. He says, Since this has been your mind, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you 
and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of your father David, I will not do it in your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And so essentially what happens is Solomon passes the kingdom on to his son Rehoboam in 931 BC, which is the last date that we're dealing with today on yours. But this is where immediately thereafter the kingdom divides. It splits in half. So there are two kingdoms, one to the north, one to the south. There's the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Now, by the time you get to Jesus, which is like a thousand years later, right? There's a lot of people who look back on this era when David and Solomon ruled as being the greatest moment in Israel's history. Those 70 years, and that's all it was, it was 70 years of time in the Bible. For them, that was the best. They were an independent nation, they were wealthy, they were privileged, they were feared, and a lot of people longed to get back to that point. Because what you're going to see, if you just look on your little tab right there, is that all of a sudden, what happens? Are, they're not in control anymore. And that economic contraction, that stops after a while. And then all these nations start to come back. And they're just taken over again and again and again to the point where they are so oppressed that they just want to be back to where they were. Israel desperately wanted to be in control of their own affairs. They wanted to have their own leaders. They wanted to follow their own laws. All that stuff that's in the Bible, they wanted to follow those. They didn't want to follow other people's laws. They wanted to have their own kingdom. So what you have to appreciate, and this is what you got to hear, is that when you get to Jesus' time, and Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, what most people are imagining is they're imagining David's kingdom. They're imagining an autonomous state where the ruler is connected directly to God, and that the people under his rule, that these people are following God's law, that that's what they're doing. They're, they're connected. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? And so in Jesus' day, many people were waiting for the new David. That's who they wanted. They wanted the new David to arrive, somebody to come back, to be a king, to raise an army, and to reestablish David's throne, restoring Israel to its former glory. So that's the first influence on Jesus' concept of God's kingdom. Does this make sense? Are we on the same page? Okay. Little bit of historical correction, though. You know I couldn't just let it go, right? Okay. So, there is only one reference to David. One historical reference to David outside of the Old Testament. And it's found on the Tel Dan Stele. This is what this is. This little thing right here. This was found in 1993, actually. That's uh, how recently it was found. And the Tel Dan stele, and in case you don't know what a stele is, it's basically like a stone or a piece of wood on which you find a lot of writing. Kings would do this in order to basically say like, hey, here's all of my accomplishments. Here's everything that I did, right? So this is what they would do. They'd write it down and they'd say like, oh, I won this war and all this stuff. Now, we don't know who wrote this. It's from an unknown king. But what we do know is that on this, it says that this unknown king went to war with the king of Israel and the and the king of the house of David, which is what that part is right there. So what this tells us is that David historically was a real person, which is good to know. However, the archaeological digs that have been done on Jerusalem don't exactly match the description that we find in the Bible. So at the time 
that David was supposedly ruling Jerusalem, which is around 1000 BC, right? They've done digs all the way down to that, and what they found is that at that time, Jerusalem was no bigger than a small village. It was definitely not the vast kingdom that you see described in the Bible. And so because of this discrepancy between you know, what we found in the archaeological digs and the history or the, what we see in the Bible, many historians have come to say, well, more than likely, these two kingdoms were never united as one. They were never together as one kingdom. Now, regardless of this, regardless of this, I still think that David is important to us. Because regardless of whether ever he, he ruled over one united kingdom, he represents something important to us, which is a man who was dedicated to God. That's an important thing. So let's just set aside all the historical inaccuracy for a second. Because I think with that, we can see that the story of David is actually a really beautiful story. I, I really think it's a beautiful story. Because it's about a man who is dedicated to his God. And although he makes a lot of mistakes, and he does. If you read David's story, he is not sinless by any means. Even though he makes a lot of mistakes, he's dedicated to trying to live the way God wants him to live. Indeed, what you heard Judy say is that he was a man after God's own heart. Which I love that turn of phrase. You've you probably heard that before, right? Have you heard that set of David? It's beautiful. Now, what does that mean in our language? It means that God was proud of David. That God, that God was, he said, you know, you're a person who I'm proud of. And so when we look at David in the Bible, I think that he's a model for what we all should want to become. Don't you want to be a person who God is proud of? I mean, I assume that's why you're here on Sunday morning. I would assume most of you, right? Is that you're trying to learn how to live in a way that God would be proud of you? Is that true? Okay, so if that's the case, then we need to ask, how do we become a person after God's own heart? Because I think it's a little bit more than just exhibiting the right behaviors and living the right way. The way they describe David in the Bible is he wasn't just a good man, but he had the right kind of heart. He has the right way inside of looking at the world. So if we're going to talk about the creation of David's kingdom in our hearts then we need to ask the question, how do we move our hearts so that we have our hearts in the right place? Which might sound like a simple question, right? I mean, what do you do? Well, you just follow God. Bam, done. Okay, Alex, end of sermon. You can sit down, right? Like, that's all it takes. But it's more complicated than that, isn't it? Because when you're talking about your heart, you're talking about your spirit or your spirituality. And when you're talking about those things, it's more than just behaviors, isn't it? It's more than just acting and saying the right things. Because there's a lot of people who you probably know who say and do all the right things. But that doesn't mean that their heart is in the right place. That doesn't mean that their spirit is connected with God's love. Because I've known a lot of people who do and say all the right things. That doesn't mean that they're connected. So the question is, how do you go about doing this? How do you connect yourself spiritually with God? Well, there's a lot of different methods. You tell me if you've ever done any of these things before. So, there's prayer, meditation. Done those things before? Of course, right? Those connect you with God. How about mission, outreach? Have you ever done those things? Okay, those are important. James, he talks about those, right? You go into the world. That connects you with God. What about going on retreats and pilgrimages? You ever done anything like that before? Done a retreat? Done a pilgrimage? If you haven't done a retreat yet, if you're a woman, you should sign up for the women's retreat. <laughs> Plug. 
It's a good way to do it. How about love and forgiveness? Have you ever done anything like that? That's a way you can get connected with God. Okay, now all of these things, what do they do? What is their purpose? They create moments of communion. Moments of communion. Now, what does that word communion mean? You all know communion, right? We're about to do it today. What does it mean? It means an act of sharing. That's what it means. It's an act of sharing. But communion technically is more than just you take a portion of what you have and you share it with someone else. Communion is when you lose track of who you are as an individual and you become part of a larger body. Communion is when you feel bound together with something greater than yourself. Communion is when those barriers that separate us from one another fall, and for just a moment, you catch a glimpse of what it's like to exist outside of yourself. Now, I've experienced moments of communion in nature when I've been walking, and I've been going out there, and I feel all of a sudden so enmeshed by my environment that there's no difference between me and the world around me. Have you ever experienced that before? Some people have, I'm sure. I've experienced it in relationships, where I felt so connected to someone because of how much I love them, that I start to be able to see the world through their eyes. I felt it in this room before, when either through a song that's being played or through a prayer that's being spoken, sometimes even in the sermon, I dare say, uh, (laughs) that we all feel that we're on the same page and we all feel this presence of God in the room. And each of those moments... I lose track of who I am, and I feel that I'm part of something greater than myself. And it's in those moments that God slips into the gaps of my life, and I feel that my heart becomes more connected with God. Now, why is it that moments of communion create these opportunities for us to feel spiritually connected with God? Why does that happen? Well, it happens because of a deficiency all of us share in here, which is that You can only see the world through your eyes. Am I correct about that? Okay, the best that we can do when it comes to understanding what other people are going through is imagine what they are feeling and experiencing in that moment. That's the best that we can hope to do. But if we enter in to a moment of communion, that changes. Because the problem that we face is that because we can't experience what other people are going through, our love has limitations, right? Like, you can, I can love you so much, but the fact is, I have a limit on the way that I can love you because I can't understand exactly what you're going through. Whereas God, by definition, has no limits, right? That love, by definition, has no limits because God can understand what every single one of you is going through in here right now, individually, So God's love has no limit. So if we want to be a person who is God is proud of, a person after God's own heart, then we have to get rid of those limitations. We have to get rid of them, and we have to enter into these moments of communion. Because the more those barriers that separate us fall, so do the barriers that limit our love. And I need you to hear this. So come on in here with me, because I can see it's a little bit of zoning. Okay? Stay with me. This is the most important thing that I'm saying all day. You can forget everything else I said about the history, but this matters, okay? The degree to which you love is the degree to which you can build God's kingdom here on earth. 
Everything that you see in the world, everything that you see that's been created by human hands, whether it's bad or good, came from someone's heart. We as humans, the reality is we can only create what we know. If you know good things, you can create good things. If you know bad things, you're going to create bad things. But when it comes to the creation of God's kingdom, that requires unconditional love, God's unconditional love. And so if you do not know what that unconditional love means, if you've never experienced that before, then it's going to be very hard for you to create God's kingdom here on earth. And so I want to end this morning by saying that the first step in the creation of God's kingdom is the creation of David's kingdom in your heart. We need to be a people who strive to erase the limits of our love. We need to be a people who strive to see the world through eyes that are different than our own. We need to be a people who strive to open ourselves to moments of communion. Because only then will we be able to overcome our limitations, and only then will we be able to create God's kingdom here on earth. So as you enter into a moment of communion today, which is what we're going to do, I hope that you might feel those barriers that separate you from everyone else fall for just a moment. Because when you can catch a glimpse of that, that's when God looks at you and says, you are someone who I am proud of because you are a person after my own heart. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.